0: Please stand in body or in spirit for the reading of the gospel. This challenging word is from Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27. But I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks and don't demand your things back from those who take them. Treat people in the same way that you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, why should you be commended? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, why should you be commended? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, why should you be commended? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be paid back in full. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return— If you do, you will have a great reward. You will be acting the way children of the Most High act. For God is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. Be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good portion, packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing, will fall into your lap. The portion you give will determine the portion you receive in return. This is the gospel of grace. Thanks Thanks to to God. God. <clears throat> so I, I had a children's sermon prepared for this morning before I knew that Christiana and Lila would be here, and I'm so glad they were here and talked to our kiddos today. But when I sat down to write the sermon for grown-ups, I realized this sermon wouldn't be complete without the children's version. So I'm going to do the children's sermon anyway to get (laughs) us going. But instead of making the kids come back up here, I'm going to make all of you participate. Now, where are the kids in the room? Raise your hand if you're a kid. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna need your help. Okay, because grownups are notorious for not wanting to have fun and not participating in silliness. I'm seeing some head nods from the kids. So, if you are a kid sitting near a grownup, it's your job to make sure they play along. Okay. So, I wanna start by talking about emotions. We're gonna review some of the emotions we tend to experience, and when I say an emotion, I want you to do your very best impression of that emotion with your face. Got it? What might your face look like when you're happy? What about sad? What about worried? Excited? Now what about mad? What might your face look like when you're angry? Good job, I'm proud of you guys. Okay, I have a question for you about anger. Is it wrong to be angry? You guys... Kids, help, help, help the adults out. They don't know how to answer out loud. Is it, is it wrong to be angry? No. It's not wrong to be angry. The feeling of anger can be like this important little alarm bell inside your body that lets you know something is not right. For example, if you see a bully picking on another kid and it makes you angry, that is good it means your alarm bell is in good working order. If you see a bully picking on a kid and you think it's funny, that means your alarm bell needs some serious maintenance. Now the tricky thing about our emotions is that they don't always tell us the truth. Sometimes we get angry about things we don't really need to be angry about. Just like sometimes we get worried about things we don't really need to be worried about. Emotions are sometimes spot on. Other times they exaggerate and overfunction, or they minimize and underfunction. Other times they just uncontrollably spew nonsense. And when that happens, it's usually because we are tired or hungry or forgot to take care of ourselves in some other way, so our emotions are on the fritz. They aren't malfunctioning per se by being dramatic. They're just letting us know that some other part of our body or soul needs some tender loving care. Okay, so I want to go back to anger. A good and important emotion, but a tricky one when it comes to knowing what to do with it. If you keep all your anger bottled up inside, that can make you sick. But if you let it come gushing out of you, it's possible you might hurt someone. My rule of thumb is this. Anger often needs to be expressed, but I have to find a way to express it without hurting myself or others. Here's an example. I once asked a friend how her family deals with anger. She said sometimes they get a box of Teddy grams and viciously bite the heads off the Teddy (laughs) grams. This is okay. Because teddy grams are not actual real people or animals, and so it's perfectly safe to bite their heads off. So I'm gonna give you a pop quiz to see if you're following along. Okay? Let's say you feel angry because someone has called you a bad name, so you use your anger to call them a bad name back. Is that okay? Let's say you feel angry, and so you go inside and punch your pillow and scream into it where no one can hear you. Is that okay? Let's say you use your anger to hit someone in the face. Is that okay? Probably not. Let's say you use your anger to work for justice by forming a peaceful protest. Is that okay? Let's say you use your anger to set a healthy boundary with a toxic person. Is that okay? Yep, it sure is. The children's sermon is starting to morph into a grown-up sermon now. But I think talking about anger is super important if we're going to have any chance of understanding Jesus' words in the right way. What he has to say to us today is really, really hard to get. And if we're not careful, we'll interpret Jesus' words in Luke 6 in such a way that the Jesus who threw the money changers out of the temple simply couldn't have existed. Angry Jesus is incompatible with an overly simplistic interpretation of his words today about loving the enemy and turning the other cheek. If we don't get the interpretation right we contradict the very God who sent plague upon plague on the Egyptian slave owners until they let God's people go. So we really have to put on our thinking caps here, and more than that, I think we have to open our hearts. I think Luke 6 makes for a fascinating and potentially convicting read during this particular era in the life of our country. We're living in such a polarized time where divisions are deep, and enemies abound. People we used to think of as friends we now have to block on Facebook or avoid talking to in the supermarket just to keep our blood pressure down. What does Jesus have to say to us in these challenging times? Not too long ago, I attended a workshop on civic discourse that I thought might help me with this very question because I feel lost trying to navigate these deeply polarizing times with wisdom and grace. And I thought maybe I could learn something at this workshop on Christian dialogue. But instead, I was left deeply unsatisfied with the answers that were provided. Essentially, the workshop leader said some very nice sounding things about learning to listen to one another and make room for people's opinions with whom we disagree. They even gave an inspiring example about a hot button issue, which they had managed to see both sides of in a conflict, where they had managed to see both sides of the conflict. I won't go into the details, but this particular conflict had to do with race, with the routine loss of black and brown lives, and showing respect to the American flag. The presenters lifted up this healthy dialogue between two differing points of view as an example for us to follow and as a potential way forward in this mess that is our country. This was supposed to be a Christian workshop and so I raised my hand. When oppression is present, doesn't that change the conversation about civic discourse? Like didn't Jesus side with the poor, the oppressed, and the violated? If we're going to follow Jesus' example, I'm struggling with this notion that the experience of the oppressor should get just as much airtime as the experience of the oppressed. This is also my rub with what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, because it could be easily misconstrued to mean that those who are oppressed should remain silent, polite, subservient and passive. That victims should remain victims without complaint, without voice, without recompense or hope. But that interpretation is unequivocally inconsistent with the God who liberates slaves in Egypt, who defends the orphan and the widow, who feeds the hungry and sends the rich away empty, who gives preferential treatment to the outcast and delivers words of woe to the religious hypocrite who values profit over people. So what does Jesus mean when he says, love your enemy, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, etc.? What does he really mean? I don't know but not knowing has never stopped me from preaching before, so here we go. (laughs) I think this is an ongoing conversation, by the way, as all sermons are, and we should keep talking about it after I'm done with my special little time in the pulpit where I get to do all the talking and you do all the listening. This one-sided part is fun for me, but the real work is what we do after the preaching moment ends and the conversation begins and the transformation starts. I don't know exactly how to interpret Jesus in this passage because it's a really difficult one. But there are three guidelines I'd like to suggest as a starting place for understanding his words and taking them to heart. Number one. There is no universal interpretation of what Jesus says here that will work the same way in all circumstances at any time. Sorry to break it to you, but applying Jesus' wisdom will require ongoing discernment. For example, how you respond when your usually loving and supportive spouse snaps at you in a moment of frustration (coughs) is different from how you respond when a perpetually toxic person speaks to you in a demeaning way for the umpteenth time. Every time your alarm bell known as anger goes off, you don't react in the same way. Different scenarios call for different responses. An emotionally mature and grounded in Christ person will learn how to expand and diversify their responses beyond knee-jerk reactions. Jesus is opening up the possibilities so that we aren't stuck on automatic, wielding our anger to cause more damage. I remember very, very shortly after my divorce, someone in my life was trying to be helpful and I suppose hold me accountable to the ways of Christ. He asked me, "Kindle, have you forgiven your husband yet? And I told him honestly that I wasn't sure. That forgiveness was complicated in a process and that it was probably going to be a long journey for me to figure it out. He said, I've got got to ask you something else. Have you asked him to forgive you yet? I felt in that moment the wind knocked out of me like he had punched me in the gut. For the record, this is not a question you ever ask a survivor of abuse because their inner work is unlearning the deeply damaging psychological message that the abuse was their fault. It is a long and arduous battle to accept that no matter what your flaws may be, you are not responsible for any of the abuse that happened to you. There was a different person I spoke to, a woman in my congregation, and in a moment of vulnerability, I shared with her my worst and most horrific wound from my marriage. She said, "Kindle, I want you to take the word forgiveness, place it in a box with a lid on, and set it on a shelf. Don't take that lid off the box unless you want to. That was the wisdom I needed. She wasn't saying, don't you ever forgive that son of a... She was acknowledging that this was my journey, and no one else could dictate to me how or when to go about it. She was giving me permission to go at my pace. And without even having to say it, she was letting me know that God was with me where I was at. God wasn't out ahead of me, waiting for me to arrive at some supposedly holier response. God was with me in the present pain and confusion. There is no universal interpretation of what Jesus says here that will work the same way in all circumstances at any time. Number two, you cannot, I repeat you cannot, correctly understand love without also understanding power. Loving your enemy does not look the same when your enemy is the guy who cut you off in traffic as when your enemy is the systemic oppression of your people. Your race, your gender, your sexuality, etc. James Cone says theology can never be neutral or fail to take sides on issues related to the plight of the oppressed. This is so because God is revealed in Jesus as a God whose righteousness is inseparable from the weak and helpless in human society. It's so easy for people of privilege to use Jesus' words in Luke 6 to demand further subservience from the powerless. If people of color are angry, if women are angry, if sexual minorities are angry, if abuse survivors are angry, too often people in power react, you need to calm down. But that's not Jesus talking. That is the preservation of privilege talking. It is never the oppressor's job to demand forgiveness, to expect politeness, or to require civil discourse. What it means to love your enemy is always the prerogative of the oppressed to define. And never, ever, ever, the job of the privilege t- to dictate downward to those beneath them. So if you are standing over and above telling someone how to love despite systemic violations that isn't love, that isn't Christian, that isn't gospel. Number three. Love is the rule is always the rule. Now you might think that this should have been point number one and point number three. Love as the rule is of utmost importance, after all. But I think in order to say love is always the rule, you've really got to say some other things first so that the possibility of misunderstanding and abuse is at least reduced, if not eliminated. What does it mean to love your enemy, to be merciful and compassionate? First of all, who has the power in this scenario If it is you, mercy looks like shutting your mouth and listening. If you are the person without power, mercy might mean opening your mouth, not in vitriol, but in truth. How to be loving in these polarizing times is perhaps one of our primary Christian tasks. But let us not be confused. Love does not tolerate evil. Love does not condone prejudice or make space for bigotry. Love makes space for humanity and for truth-telling. Love does not mean you have to protect the feelings of oppressors. Love means you channel the anger into constructive paths of change. This is by no means a complete explanation of Luke chapter 6. I think we will be learning our whole lives long and there is much more to be said and much more to be worked out. But I do think we have to start with these three things. There is no universal interpretation of what Jesus says here that will work in the same way in all circumstances. You cannot correctly understand love without also understanding the dynamics of power. And love is the rule, is always the rule. That's already a pretty tall order. So I'm glad that we have each other so we can help one another along the way. O merciful God, whose love we will spend a lifetime trying to comprehend, help us, help us, help us. We need your wisdom. We need your love. We need your power. Amen.